you joining us for today's online conversation on faithful presence, the promise and peril of faith in the public square. We really are grateful to our both Giff and Anna Thornton, Lawrence Lamb, and our co-host, New City Commons, in making today's program possible. If this is your first time joining us, you are one of those 150 uh, people who are new to our online conversations and perhaps new to the Trinity Forum. We work to cultivate, curate, and promote the best of Christian thought leadership and provide a place where leaders can wrestle with the big questions of life in the context of faith and to come to better know the author of the answers. And we hope that this program will be a small taste of that for you. And certainly some of the questions we've had to increasingly grapple with in the public square, as well as our personal lives, include how is it possible to discern and promote the common good, especially when we are so angry and divided? What's our civic obligation to those whose beliefs we believe to be harmful? Or to paraphrase a question that our guest posed in his book, in a world where political discussion has turned so mean and contemptuous, and Christians have frequently acted just as mean and contemptuous, is it even possible to have faithful presence, a faithful presence in today's political climate? It's an increasingly urgent question, and one to which our guest brings quite a bit of real-world experience. So we're delighted to be able to explore it and wrestle with it with our guest today, Governor Bill Haslam. Bill Haslam served as the 49th governor of the state of Tennessee from 2011 to 2019 after previously serving as the two-term mayor of Knoxville. As Alyssa mentioned, he has been a real friend to the Trinity Forum and helped participate and even launch our presence in Nashville, which has now been going on for 10 years, and we are just uh, really grateful for his role in that. Before becoming both governor and before that mayor, he had worked with the Pilot Corporation for almost 20 years, eventually becoming its president, and then working as the CEO of the e-commerce division of Saks Fifth Avenue before he ran for office. He serves on the boards of Teach for America and Young Life, has been married to his wife, Chrissy, for 40 years, and is the author of the new release, Faithful Presence, which we've invited him to discuss today. So, Bill, welcome. Great to see you. Sure, and thanks. I have to say, it's been fun to watch all these people on the chat roll through, friends from all around. So, uh, thanks. Uh, I'm, wishing, I'm wishing this could be a live conversation with all those names I just saw. Oh, we, we wish it were live as well. It would be one of these days, hopefully very soon. So uh, this is your first book. You know, often uh, politicians write their memoirs. It is not a memoir. You've written a very different kind of book. So I wanted to ask you what led you to write it? And then just looking at the title itself, what does faithful presence in political life mean? Uh, thanks. Um, you know, like most people, I'm, I'm actually going to say, like everybody on this call, I'm concerned with the current state of our partisan divide and uh, not just the fact that we're divided, everybody knows that, but the, the contempt that we're, we have for people that we see as being on the other side. And I think one of the things that maybe bothered me the most while I was in office uh, was that when I looked out at Christians, at people of faith, it felt like we weren't acting any different than anyone else. And, uh, you know, there's, uh, it kind of has become more and more apparent to me that um, the, part of the problem is we have a, a strong sense of 
here are the things that we care about as Christians in the public square and that people know us for. Unfortunately, nobody has really talked nearly as much about well, what, what should we act like in the public square? You know, all of us have been to hundreds of Sunday school classes and seminars on here's what marriage looks like or raising children. Or here's what it looks like to be a business person or a student. But nobody's really talked that much about what does it look like to be faithful in the public square. And so uh, I'm sure a lot of your listeners would, would uh, recognize I stole the title from James Davidson Hunter, who talks about what faithful presence. And I, I asked him, I didn't totally steal it. I asked him if I could borrow it. Um, but this idea of what would it look like if people of faith entered the public square in a different way, um, that, that we might be not just part of exacerbating the issue, but actually making it better. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, the divisions as part of sort of the peril of um, our, our political situation. And one of the studies that you cited in your book, I wanted to ask you about, which pertains to what you have called motive attribution asymmetry, mm -hmm. uh, which is essentially where one believes that oneself is acting out of love, goodness of heart, uh, beneficence, and one's opponents are motivated by uh, at best, stupidity, and at worst, evil. And you cite another study that essentially finds that the levels of motive attribution asymmetry in the United States right now are somewhat akin to what they are between the Israelis and the Palestinians. And so I, I have to ask, what's going on with that? Why are we so eager to see our, um, our political antagonists uh, as haters and fools? Yeah, I, I, actually, the, the study was from like six years ago, and it showed the that motivation attribution asymmetry between Republicans and Democrats, left and right, red and blue, uh, to be greater than that between Israelis and Palestinians. And that was six years ago, so we know it's only gotten worse. So what's going on? I think there's a couple of things. I think, um, first of all, the, the age in which we live, where um, we can choose where we get our information from. And uh, we can watch, the, uh, one of the things I say in the book is, we watch the news for, for ammunition, not for information. I watch the news that I want to pick because it's gonna tell me that what I think is right. And today we all know you can pick your news anywhere along the spectrum. And so you watch that and you go, aha, see, I am right. Mm -hmm. And we dig in further and we're more certain that uh, if you don't see it my way, that you, it must be for bad motives. And, uh, I, I'm, I think there's more of a sense, I think, unfortunately, from people of fear that we've reacted to that. I, I'm sorry, from people of faith, we've reacted to that out of fear. And, you know, fear is always a bad motivator. And, you know, we're, we're told repeatedly in scripture not to fear, but we look around and see the world changing really fast. And as, as one pastor I know uh, quipped, he said, it's like we went from being the home team to the visiting team in one generation. And now it's, like we're in a foreign land and we don't know how to act and we're afraid of what we see happening. And so I think it's that. It's 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 this sense of we're divided, we're mad, we think you have bad motives, and I'm really, really worried about what is happening. Right. You know, in your work, you mentioned a number of different, uh, what you call the perils uh, in the public square. And uh, you did talk about the fact that there's a lot of young people who are becoming disillusioned and simply dropping out and withdrawing. Uh, but I wanted to ask you about, in many ways, the opposite peril of that, uh, the sort of the trend towards freighting politics with too much significance, 
uh, and even taking on too much significance to politics in our own uh, sense of identity. Uh, the sociologist Jonathan Haidt, who we talked with on one of these online conversations at one point had found that one of the biggest markers of identity, which used to be faith, uh, faith has actually become eclipsed by politics in terms of an identity marker. Uh, he talked about the fact that in 1960, it was only around 5% of Americans who said they'd be displeased if their child married something, someone of a different party. Uh, that's now 40%, which is actually higher than the number of people who say they'd be displeased if, if their child married outside their faith. So as a person of, of faith, as well as a politician, why do you believe that we, the people in many ways, are increasingly basing our identity on the political rather uh, than either on our faith or, or other forms of, of identity? Well, I think a couple of things. Number one, some of that's the fear I mentioned before and people see, wow, this world's changing fast. We need to pass a law to stop that from happening. We need to, if we can only elect the right people, they will stop this cultural slide that we see. So I think, I think that's, that's a, a big piece of it. I think the, the second thing is, it's, I think it's an issue of, it's a hard issue for us as people of faith. I think that the question that a lot of us who are involved in the in political world should ask ourselves, are we as upset about um, losing our relationship with God as we are about losing an election for someone that we care about? And does it stir that same passion in you when you think about your relationship slipping with God as it, as it does when you see, man, the culture is slipping away that I don't want it to, to happen. And so I think it's, it, it's the, again, at the end of the day, I think it's a hard issue for us and a question of trust. And mm -hmm. this sense that if I can, if we can just, like I said, if we can just elect the right people and they pass the right laws, uh, this will stop and our world will look more the way that I feel like it should look. You know, another uh, challenge or peril um, that pertains to our polarization uh, is the ways that our polarization has has changed over time. It's, um, you know, as you had sort of mentioned earlier, it's not just that we we disagree with each other, uh, but that we also really dislike each other and disrespect each other. And a, a newer wrinkle is the sort of things that we disagree on. Um, you know, there's certainly been a, a long and robust history of Americans disagreeing on policy, you know, even uh, disagreeing on ideas, even values. Uh, but increasingly, we don't agree, not just on sort of right or wrong or better or worse, but on true or false, real or unreal. Uh, there's, it seems like an increasing um, sense of almost customized reality, you know, that kind of falls down on political lines and as well as a rise in conspiracy theories. Uh, and one of our guests just a little while ago, David French, had talked about the fact that Christians are not immune from that trend, that um, actually self-reported evangelical Christians are the most likely group to affirm at least part of the Q conspiracy theory. So what is going on with that kind of peril to our, our political process? Why have, um, why have we as people of faith uh, been just as susceptible to conspiracy uh, and to uh, sort of different takes on reality than, um, than any other group? I think you put your finger on on a, on a you know on something that's right on target. Sure, uh, you know if you think back to you know when Jesus is before Pilate and Pilate has you know Jesus talks about truth and Pilate has his famous you know what's truth and 
you're thinking is the is the governor there? He's heard all sorts of people prayed in and out of his office talking about what's true, and he kind of says, yeah, you know, he becomes kind of the first postmodernist who says, ah, you know, what, what's truth anyway? And I think we historically we tend to think of people maybe further from the left of saying the, the truth is relative idea, that you know, how, how do you do, you know, what's true for you isn't necessarily true for me. Unfortunately, I think we've seen that now across the political spectrum and. Um, I've talked to any number of pastors recently who said, you know, I'm really thinking about quitting uh, because in my church, there are so many people who, um, who have, uh, you know, uh, taken on to conspiracy theories and have said, um, you know, they, they believe that, well, you can have the, the truth, but that, and I can have an, a, an alternate truth and they're both, they can both be, uh, be true at the same time. I think, again, we've lost this sense of we're the people who are supposed to be, believe in truth. Now, the, the qualifier of that is we're the people who are supposed to believe in truth and love, you know, speak the truth with love. That, that's what's hard in the world today. And unfortunately, you know, so we're not doing, we, I'm using the broad we of the, uh, of the church, we're not doing great at the truth part or the love part, uh, particularly the love part when we talk about truth. Well, I, I'm confident we could talk about the perils uh, to the public square for a long time, but uh, I definitely want to sort of dig in to what some of the promises are. And one of the things that you've talked about is that, and I think you put it this way, you said, in my experience, most Christians don't have a developed uh, political theology, except for a, few, a position on a few issues, whether it's abortion or gay marriage or religious freedom or the like. So what would, um, in your experience uh, or perspective, a robust political theology look like in practice? So, so you start with this. One of the things that's fundamental to our faith is this sense of being broken, imperfect people. The, the, uh, the Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall sh fallen short of the glory of God. So that, that should be our starting point. My, my political mentor was a man named Howard Baker, who was a senator from Tennessee and ended up being Reagan's chief of staff and ambassador to Japan for uh, Bush 41. But uh, Baker was from a little country town north of Knoxville. And he said, always remember the other fella might be right. Okay, now as as believe as believe as Christians who understand this concept of our own fallenness, our own brokenness, you know, we know. I mean, I've 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 made eighty-seven mistakes today, or you know, since since lunch between lunch and this in this uh, conversation. Okay, we just know that's fundamentally true about ourselves. So if that's true about ourselves in every other way, it should be true that we realize we we might not have all this right. In the political square, that doesn't mean we're mushy or that we're, you know, we we're we're soft on the truth at all. But it does mean we enter with a spirit of humility. And you know, the the thing that that I think Scripture is the clearest on, uh, or one of the things, is this call to humility. For you know, both Peter and James say, "For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble." Um, and you know, James writes, you know, wisdom that's from above. And this is, so think about this. If you think about how, how are Christians known in the public square? And we would hope it'd be known for having wisdom from above. Well, James says wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, uh, open to, or full of mercy and good fruits, open to reason, sincere and impartial. 
Okay, now if I said, if we, we all walked out to the main street of where we lived and said, would you describe Christians as, uh, as full of mercy, open to reason, um, sincere, impartial, I don't think you would get a lot of, oh yes, that's exactly how I see Christians in the public square. And yet that's, that's what we're clearly commanded to do. So my fear is we've taken some things that, that scripture is not clear about um, and we've tried to make them fundamental truths. Meanwhile, some things that are fundamental truths we've ignored. And I would think beginning with this concept of humility, which should be the mark of every Christian. You know, as clear as scripture is about humility, uh, one can easily see why it would be a really tough sell in the public arena. Uh, in that, you know, to, to be, you know, I work for a nonprofit, you know, we're often told you can't change the world if you can't make the rent. In politics, you can't change the world unless you're elected. And there is a lot of evidence to suggest that uh, humility does not get you votes. Uh, it does not get you donors. It does not get you retweets or attention. Uh, you know, at one point you wrote in your book that you know, great leadership and humble leadership looks a lot more like Socrates and Lincoln than Patton or Nero. Uh, but at the same time, Socrates was essentially executed by the state. He was forced to commit suicide. Lincoln was assassinated. Uh, and there, we've had ample evidence over the last several years that there is, in many ways, a real appetite for narcissism, bullying, and self-promotion. So how is a public servant to navigate what seems like the positive reinforcement and rewards of the antithesis of humility. Yeah, so that, that quote from, you know, that uh, great leadership looks more like, um, you know, Socrates and Lincoln than it does like Nero or Patton is actually not from me. That's from uh, Jim Collins' book, Good to Great, which I think I'm sure everybody on here has read. It's kind of the seminal business book. And if you remember what he did, he went in and studied all these companies without a predisposition to what it was going to show about uh, the companies that out, you know, uh, kind of averaged like the market did in returns for 10 years, and then had 10 years of, of way above normal returns. Uh, and then they went, he went back and said, those companies that went from good to great, and he took out all the extraneous factors and said, what were the common characteristics of their leaders? And that was the conclusion that these leaders were people of mission and purpose, but people who realized that the story wasn't about them. And again, that's something, again, that's kind of fundamental to us as, as Christians is we know the story's not about us. And so um, one of the chapters in the book is, well, if the, if the meek shall in inherit the earth, who's going to run for office? And, you know, I, I, you might say like, well, it doesn't feel like it's working. It feels like the arrogant and the people who are great at putting other folks down on Twitter, et cetera, that they're winning. But I, I'd argue two things. Number one, kind of what's historical records show in terms of who's been effective. And again, I'll take a Lincoln and obviously, you know, unfortunately was assassinated, but this is somebody that people mistook his humility for weakness. And he was willing to withstand the deaths of, you know, 600,000 Americans to keep the union together and to obliterate uh, slavery. Okay. And then I think the other thing I'd say is, even if we say that's not, the world doesn't want what we have, the world doesn't react, react well to humility. I still don't think, somehow we have this idea that in politics, because the stakes are so high, because it matters so much, we can suspend the normal rules. So in business, we don't say, you know, if you're about to go bankrupt, then you can make some unethical decisions. Or we don't say in you know, marriage, 
you know, if the person in the next cubicle is really, really attractive, then you don't have to worry about your marriage house. We don't, we don't make those waivers anywhere else. Somehow in the public square, we said, listen, it's a knife fight out there and we can't bring pillows. And so we need to be in the knife fight too, but I don't see anywhere scripture says, again, we get to act differently because the stakes are, seem so high. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Uh, you know, related to that, and certainly one of the drivers of um, kind of the erosion of humility in the public square uh, is probably social media. And of course, anybody who's engaged in the public square, you know, one of the things you have to do is you have to operate within the culture of your time. Um, and one of the defining sort of modes of our public discourse uh, is social media. Um, even though in many ways, and according to uh, many theorists, it does seem like many of our social media are almost perfectly calibrated uh, to not just encourage narcissism, but also to encourage you know, division and enmity and confusion and alienation and everything else. So um, as someone uh, who has you know, had to have a very robust social media presence uh, as anyone does when they're running for office, what does a faithful presence look like on say Twitter? <laughs> yeah, um, I think it, it, it looks like not saying um, the person with the most clever quip wins. Um, and it's not the person with, like I said, the best put down that wins. Here's what I, here's part of the, the argument I'm trying to make in faithful presence is this. I think the world is thirsty, so thirsty for what the life that, that we have been given in Christ. I, I'll give you an example. Right now, as I'm, as I'm doing this, um, we're at a Young Life camp in North Carolina where a friend of ours is speaking. And think about the situation. These are teenagers who have been basically cooped up, trapped, not being able to be what teenagers have historically been social people. But they have had their phones, okay? Here they get their phones taken away from them. And it's like there's this sense of, oh, wow, I've forgotten what life was like. You know, I've, life has been in my bedroom, uh, on my bed with my phone, and now it's, oh, I'm, I'm surrounded by real life. And I think my point would be this, is uh, almost everybody that I know, and I bet that you know, is sick of living life through a social media filter that's driven by, again, by who can be the most clever or who can, who can portray their life in the best way. And they're, they're dying to see life in an abundant way. And that, that's our, this is, I, I would argue, this is our moment um, when everybody is so exhausted and frustrated with the world as it is. Yeah, that's great. Well, I can see the questions are already piling up, but uh, before we turn to audience questions, I'd love to ask you just sort of um, extending out some of the ideas. Um, you know, obviously you've spent most of your life in business and in politics, uh, but there's lots of public sectors that have great cultural influence beyond those. And would love to get your sense of what, uh, what a faithful presence in other culture shaping sectors, whether it's uh, the arts, entertainment, media, uh, the university might look like. Yeah, so I mean, I think, I think the basics are the same. I think, again, we, no matter which of those spheres you're in, um, we have the same call to humility. We also bring with us something else. We're in a world right now that can't quite figure out um, justice and mercy, right? I mean, we have people walking in the streets with signs saying, you know, no justice, no peace. And we understand that. But we also know 
as humans, like we need mercy too. Like I don't, I don't want a world of all justice because I know what that would mean for me. Nor do I want a world of all mercy. You know, I want, I want to make certain the bad guys get arrested, etc. What we have again as people of faith is we have a picture of what justice and mercy together look like. I mean, there's no better picture of what how do you have justice and mercy than the cross? I mean, ultimately it's again, it's 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 the most beautiful story ever of a God of justice and mercy figuring out how to have both at the same time. And so as you walk into that world of whether it be the arts or business or medicine or education or wherever, whatever, wherever you're called to have a faithful presence, I would argue, hope you bring with you this, this sense of humility, uh, which I would actually argue in today's world, rather than being a, a turnoff is kind of a winsome call. Uh, and this idea of, of justice and mercy, that, that we need to be people of both of those things. And I think the last thing I'd say is this, and you mentioned David French earlier, you know, David wrote something, he said, it's hard to find any institution in our country today, political, religious, cultural, social, that's not pulling us apart rather than bringing us together. And so I guess that part of what I'm saying is that, that's, that could be, that, that could be what we're called to do. Or I think it is. I mean, that's what being salt and light might look like in today's world. That's great. Well, this is the, the portion of our online conversation where we actually turn to questions from our viewers. And you can not only like or ask a question uh, in the Q&A box, but you can also like a question. And that helps give us an idea of what some of the most popular questions are. So one of our first questions comes from Emily Winnenberg. And Emily asks, could you comment further on the relationships between Dave, James Davis and Hunter's rather rich conception of faithful presence and the approach that you take in your book? Hunter argues that Christians have over relied on politics for their cultural engagement and explicitly calls Christians to faithfulness in all areas of life, not just politics. Yeah, so no, I, I agree with, uh, with Jen, that that's what James is called for, and it's the right one, by the way. I just, I think we're all, though, we're all called to be faithful in the places where God has called us. You know, the, the verse that, that really led me into politics was uh, in Jeremiah 29, you know, when the Israelites are held captive in Babylon, and um, Jeremiah writes to them. Jer Jeremiah's back in Jerusalem, and he writes to them, and I've always told people, like, if you write to me and I'm being held captive by, by a horrible king, I hope you're writing, I'm going to come get you. Keep your, keep your head down. I'll be there quick. But he writes, you're going to be there a while. So um, he said, plant gardens, build houses, marry your, you know, have children, marry, you know, make sure your children uh, marry. He said, seek the peace uh, of the places where I have called you into exile for in its welfare, you'll find your welfare. And so what I'd say is, um, uh, the questioner I think is right, is right on target. Wherever God has called you, those places he's called you in exile, you should seek the welfare of that place. So if it's in arts and culture, you, you should be, uh, uh, you should see what it looks like to be salt and light in that situation. For me, you know, it, for a period of life, it was in that public arena. And the reason I wrote this book is because I, I feel like Christians have been particularly um, ineffective and, in, and inadequate and unbiblical in our approach in the public square. 
Thanks for that. So another question comes from Brenda Berman. And Brenda asks, as a believer in your roles as mayor and governor, how did you walk the balance between being an authentic follower of Jesus Christ on one hand and bringing your faith to bear on policy slash legislative issues without seeming to overstep a separation of church and state boundary? Did any particular scriptures give you helpful guidance on that? Yeah, so it's a great question. So we, we, we begin with the recognition that we live in a pluralistic society and country where um, our constitution says we're not going to give precedence to any one faith or, or even to faith at all over another. And I think the, the, the beauty of what our founders did, and I think you all have had uh, Ben Sass uh, on, on here before, and Ben has a line in, in one of his books that said, you know, before 1783, um, there, there was this idea that religion had to be a part of establishing a government. And our founders and framers their brilliance was about saying, faith is so important that we're not going to let the government play any role. We're not going to let the government establish it, but we're also, and just as importantly, not going to let it prohibit the free exercise thereof. And it's both of those things. And so I, I, there was one story I tell about in the book where our state legislators had passed a bill to make the Bible the official state book. Um, like we have a state bird and a state insect and a, you know, I can keep going to state tree and everything else. And so I ended up vetoing that vibe, that bill. And I had a lot of friends say like, wait, wait, wait you vetoed the Bible, you know? Um, but it's because, like I said, I think the constitution is clear, like we're not supposed to establish a religion. And I also thought it trivialized the Bible, by the way, by putting it on the same level as our state insect and state song. Um, but also the sense of that's not what's gonna change hearts. Making the Bible the official state book is not going, going to change anybody's heart. Um, and so there's this keen sense of what, what, the, what the role is and then where the church has been effective. That the last thing I'd say is, if you look at anywhere the church has been associated with the state, the church is lost in the end, right? Mm -hmm. If you look at historically the church in Europe and some places where we had an official state religion, the church has, has, has become uh, very cold over time. Mm -hmm. And I, I think, I don't think it would help us to have, to establish our, you know, our faith as the official state uh, religion in any way. I think having said that, um, the, the flip side of that, and I think it's what the questioner was, you know, uh, very keenly observing is everybody brings their own worldview to the public square. We all bring our, our most deeply held beliefs there, no matter what they are. And we shouldn't be afraid to bring those beliefs to the public square and say, here's why we think life is so important. And here's why um, we think um, looking out for the least of these matters to us. I mean, and I can keep going, but I think you see the point. Yeah, absolutely. So our next question comes from Scott Crosby, who wants to ask about sort of the individual versus the institutional. And he asks, both James Hunter and AEI's Yuval Levin talk about the critical role that institutions play in shaping culture. From your experience in leading corporate and political institutions, can you speak to the element of the Christian's role in being present institutionally, as opposed to just acting predominantly in an individual capacity? Yeah, well, that's a great question. There's so many people that can answer that a lot better than I can. But I think 
I would get to the point, like I said, we talked about earlier, it's hard to see an institution that's pulling the country together. And um, the reality is, is that, uh, you know, um, institutions do have a big sway over how we, what we think and what we say and in the culture of the country. So, um, you know, we, we need somebody that's a real sociologist to answer this question, not me, but I would argue that's a little bit, I'd answer that the same way. That's part of being faithful to those places you're called is there are some institutions that you're a part of and whether it be uh, your church or your industry or your um, or the, the cultural place you've been called. And I think if we can make though we can bring again, salt and light to those places, then we have a chance of changing those institutions, which over time have a bit better chance to multiply. So I'm, again, I'm, I'm not the right exact person to answer what's the relationship between the individual and the institution, except that I, I do believe that we have a chance for, to influence institutions which can multiply our impact. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. So we have a, a few questions coming in wanting your book recommendations, and I'm going to combine a couple of those. So Fritz Heinzen asks, would love to know what authors and books have influenced our guests. And then similarly, Caitlin Shelton asks, are there books you'd recommend for developing a rich political theology? Wow, uh, great question. I always hate when people ask me about books because off the top of my head, I'm thinking, oh, I'm, I have this frantic, like, trying to middle search. But I mean, I can think about some books that uh, and people that I, I have read in this um, from, uh, you know, we talked about Ben Sass before. Ben Sass's uh, two books, I think, were both, were both great. Uh, Michael Ware, who worked in the Obama White House, has a book called Reclaiming Hope, um, which is, I think is outstanding. I think James's book um, that we've referred to several times is great. Um, Pete Weiner, who I think has been on these, uh, this, uh, this program before, and I'm drawing a blank on Pete's book from a couple of years ago. Uh, again, I'm, I'm trying to just do a little mental inventory here. I'll, I'll try to do, I'll try to think of, try to think of some more, but um, I will say this, Sheree and I were talking before that we came on, so, so many of the people that are uh, Trinity fellows or senior fellows or have a relationship are people that I think about have, have truly influenced my thought, my thinking. So, a, what I a little bit of what I'd say is go back and look at uh, at the, the guests that Cherie has had and the, uh, the the folks who write and have association, because a lot of those are people that I've uh, begged, borrowed, and stolen ideas from. <laughs> Or perhaps they stole them from you. But uh, I don't if, you think have, so. <laughs> if you do have others to add, we'll just add it into the show notes later so that, that people, people can see. Uh, so a question from David Vasquez, who asked, how should a Christian's political campaign be different than one who does not follow Christ? Or should it be different? Yeah, so it's a great question. You know, there's one of the, uh, uh, the, the you know, scripture that says, you know, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility, consider others greater than yourselves. No political consultant ever gave that advice, you know, do nothing from selfishness, uh, but consider others greater than yourself, because a campaign is sort of about saying, I'm, I'm the guy or I'm the woman, you know, it's, I can, I can help this city, this state, this country. Um, but, and, and I want to also say this, campaigns are really, really, really hard. And uh, I, I tend to give a lot of grace to people in campaigns because 
of everything I've ever done in my life, it might be the hardest. And both my first campaign for mayor and the first campaign for governor, um, I'd love to tell you that I was able to live by the, the be anxious for nothing uh, scripture, uh, but I was, I was anxious most of the time because it's just, it's so visible and it's so vulnerable. But I do think uh, that uh, a faithful campaign would, would look like talking about here's what I want to do rather than here's why the other person is horrible. Uh, I think it would look like the sense of, of I, I do care about the common good. I think that government is one way to leverage your impact so much greater than, than anything that I shouldn't say than, than most other things. And here is the way that I would like to use the leverage afforded to me by this office to impact the common good. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I think we can have, we can run different campaigns if we, if we run those in that way. But I, I do want to say again, it's really, it's incredibly difficult. And it's, uh, I, I see people and I did things during, during my campaign that looking back, I go, oh, I'm not sure I'm, I'm not sure I'm, I, I should have done that or should have said that. Um, but I also know how hard it is in the middle. So I tend to give a lot of grace to candidates, uh, particularly if they are, if you have the sense of they, they are really tricky, uh, truly seeking um, to, to promote the common good by their candidacy. Yeah, that's great. So a question from Mark Bridgham, and Mark asks, what role do you think the media and media narratives play in, uh, into the increase of division, and especially the displacement of political identity versus other forms of identity, um, e.g. faith? And then he also asks, what gives you hope? Those are great questions. Um, I think that the answer, what, what role does the media play uh, in these things is huge. And I think what we all have to, to realize up front is it's not, it's not the media's business to, um, to solve problems and particularly to address the polarization of the country. Um, the media, basically, it's a very tough business and the business model is based on outrage. And the more outrage I can generate from you, then the more you're going to watch. And there's a famous quote from Les Moonves, who at the time was the CEO of CBS, and this is during the Trump campaign in 2016. And uh, pardon my French, as they say, but he said, um, he said, I don't know if this is good for the country, but it's damn good for CBS. Uh, and what he was saying is the controversy that was that had been you know, brought on by the campaign of 2016 made everyone's ratings skyrocket. And um, as much as a lot of the media outlets you know, beat up on Trump all the time, I think a lot of them were sad to see him go because it was such a ratings generator, but it's never going to be their interest to actually talk about how we're going to solve problems. It's gonna be, how do I, generate outrage by pointing out this problem and stirring it up. And I think you're right. There's a, there's such a, uh, because the media business again has gotten so hard. Like when I first ran, there was three times as many people covering the state capital um, on a political sense as there were by the time I left. And so because of that, they have to go to easy characterizations. And 
So it's like, well, he or she's a Republican or they're a Democrat, so therefore this. Uh, and there's not nearly as uh, the same kind of willingness to dig into the nuance of how people think and why they think that way. And so I, I think we should just we should just recognize that as as wary consumers and realize even that news outlet that we love, yeah. they they have a perspective and an agenda, and one of those agendas is to stay in business. So we have a couple of questions about efforts, in a sense, to, to course correct or to improve things. Uh, Mark asks, can you speak to tangible efforts to address course correct? Um, I have the experience of participating in several groups who are trying to reach across the divide with love, and it winds up feeling shallow or naive or just nice, uh, though sincere, rather than a deep stand against what is awry. And then there's a similar question that we're going to paraphrase from uh, John Fritz about what it means to love our enemies in politics when we see them do anti-Christian things or things that we perceive as against our faith. Yeah, so uh, similar, but I guess a little different questions. Let me take, I'll try to do my best on both. I think on the first one, I understand that sense of frustration that comes from uh, uh you know, when we try to do things that are working across the aisle or to address the polarization, it all feels really nice, but at the end of the day, it doesn't feel like it has much impact. And I'm, uh, you know, I, I, I end up in a lot of discussions that, that feel that way when it's over. I go, okay, that's great, but now what? Um, I, I tend to think that the answer is, let's find some actual problems to solve is, is what I say is, are, are there some things that we can, uh, we can figure out how to get done together. And, um, and that can be on the local level, something really smart, I'm, I'm sorry, something really small, or it can be on the national level. It can be a, an infrastructure bill that maybe the Republicans and Democrats can get together and actually pass something. Um, so I, that, that's, that's what I would say to, like I said, and believe me, I'm in a lot of those discussions today and I, I kind of leave going, I, I like all those people, and I'm glad I, that was interesting, but I'm not certain it makes any impact. So I tend to lean toward things that like, let's find a problem we can solve together. On the second question in terms of, well, how do we think about the folks on the other side when they're promoting something that's, that's, that feels specifically, I think the word they used was anti-Christian. And I, I, I mean, I, I start here with the uncomfortable truth and believe me, this is hard for me, but we still have the whole love your enemies thing to, to live with. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's, it's not just love those, but these love your enemies. Those are people who are actively trying to hurt you. And that, that includes this categorization too. And, you know, the, we have the reality, uh, as somebody said, is we follow someone who came not to kill the bad guys, but to let the bad guys kill him. And, that's obviously that's we're not all called to that martyr role, but we are called to follow in that idea of that of to to love that person. Um, that doesn't mean, by the way, that we just say that we're going to we're going to go along with everything. Um, there's a uh, I'm drawing a blank right now on the name of the book. I'll think of it again. I'll try to get into the show notes, but. Um, He's actually the, the president of Biola University. So somebody on this call might remember his name, but he wrote a book basically saying, we should be soft on the outside and firm on the inside. In other words, firm about our convictions, but soft on the outside to where we are approachable and relatable in those conversations. And 
I, I, again, we believe in truth, uh, but we also believe in love. And so our mandate is to figure out how to be people of both. Yeah, that's great. So we have an interesting question from Isaac Lassiter who asked, how should we talk with Christian friends who are susceptible to conspiracy theories? Yeah, wow. Uh, because we all, everybody on this, on this call or the Zoom could, could raise their hand and say, yeah, I've, I've, I've got some folks that surprise me that feel like they've, they've gone down the rabbit hole in, in some way. Um, and I think we, you, you go back to those folks and say, remind like, truth really does matter to us, even when the truth is uncomfortable. And um, we have to kind of begin with that, like we're, we're called to be people of truth. And so let, let's go back and look at that conspiracy theory. Like where, where did you, where'd you get that? And let's, what's the, what's the information show? And unfortunately the world has gotten to so much where we've learned to distrust everything. So if, even if I say, well, that's actually not true. Here's, here's what happened. They say, well, I can't, I can't believe your source. Um, so, uh, I think our call is to, to remind us like whether, whether it's the truth we want to hear or not, we're supposed to be seeking truth. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm probably like the questioner. I've had that conversation with several of my friends, sometimes to, uh, sometimes to no avail and sometimes to a little bit of progress. Yeah. Uh, so we have a question from Anne, who's a little bit more personal, which, and Anne asks, how did writing this book change you? What impact did it have on your spiritual journey? Yeah, so two or three things. Number one, I have a new, as we talked about before I started, I have a new respect for real writers. Um, this is a, this is, it's a, it's a gift that some people have. And for me, it was, you know, I realized how hard it is to write. So I, I have an, every time I read a book, I go, wow. This person's really good, uh, but the, uh, I think the second thing was the the realization that you know you 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 write a book in some ways for yourself as well to put on paper what you believe, but also to remind you what you believe. I mean, I was writing this book, and I was just as likely while I'm doing this to get mad and yell at the TV when the, some news came on that I disagreed with the, the opinion they were asserting or to be upset when my candidate lost an election. And so um, one thing about it's, it's like a pastor who preaches a sermon. The next week, everybody's looking to say, well, he, are, are they living that out or not? And so for me, it was a, it was a, it's been a good self-check. I also did because I, I had never written a book before. I, I did the, the audible, the audio version of it as well. And when I was reading it every now and then I was like, oh, oh, okay. Um, I need to write that down <laughs> because this realization that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm writing better than I'm living. Wow, that's interesting. So we have one question, I believe it's from an anonymous source saying, how have you interacted with other faith traditions in government? And what is your best practice or best practices for not sanitizing the public square from religion in general? Yeah, so I mean, we had one kind of famous uh, situation. We, I had a woman who was a, a Muslim woman who was working uh, uh, for us at the state in, a, in a, a, a big role with our economic development department. And some of our uh, legislators decided that she was... Um, you know, trying to push uh, Islamic law on um, on Tennessee, and she was recruiting people to do this, et cetera. None of which 
none of which had an ounce of truth in it. Um, and I, you know, I really decided to make a very public stance in her support uh, when she was under fire from people for what I, I felt like were, you know, illegitimate uh, reasons. And I, I think it's, again, for us, you know, the, the freedom to practice our religion should be very dear to us. And if the freedom to practice our religion is dear to us, the freedom to let other people practice theirs should be dear to us as well. So I think that that's one. In terms of the, 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 the part about how do we prevent people who are trying to sanitize the public square, I think it was from, from, uh, from our worldview. Again, I would, I would say that we have the right to, 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 to come into the public square with humility, but with our worldview uh, and to not our, our deepest held beliefs, just like everyone else does. And um, th this sense of, of, again, carrying truth and love at the same time, that message into the public square, we should never, ever, ever be embarrassed or ashamed to do that. Yeah, that's great. Well, the questions keep coming in. Um, Steve Sharkey asks, how have you, or have you found younger generations seeking out a call to politics Rather, have you found younger generations seeking to call the politics seek you out as you did with Howard Baker? Or has the younger generation become too jaded or disinterested? It's a great question. By the way, I apologize. I'm borrowing somebody's office. I don't know how to turn off their phone. So the phone ring you just heard, um, I would do something about it, except I hate to, uh, to mess up somebody's office. It actually, it's kind of encouraging. Um, uh, I have so many younger people who call and, or write email and say, I would love to get together and talk. I, I, I feel a real call to public service of some kind. I, I don't know how to do that in a, in a way that would be Christ honoring. And I would love to get together and have that conversation. So I've actually been really encouraged by that. That being said, there are a lot of the younger generation who have just said kind of a pox on both your houses. I'm, I'm, the whole conversation frustrates me and exhausts, and exhausts me, um, and I'm over it. But uh, we, we should always be about uh, encouraging people to enter the public square. I'm, I'm going to botch this quote, but Luther said something like this, and again, the quote's not going to be exactly right, but he said, send your very best uh, to public office. He said, for there, you have to deal with the ambiguities of life said, in preaching, the Holy Spirit does all the work. So uh, my pastor friends won't like me for quoting this, but said, so send your best to the public arena because you're having to deal with all the messiness. And I, that's what I encourage people is don't let the, the, the seeming messiness uh, and the sometimes the grayness of it discourage people from coming into the public square. We're running out of time, but there's another one more question that we'll we'll ask of you, and this comes from Hannah, who asks, "What habits have you developed personally, uh, or would recommend to be a faithful presence in the public square?" You know, the, the first two things that always come to my mind um, are the same habits for being faithful in the public square as as being faithful in business or medicine or education or the arts, anything else. Is there has to be some devoted time of your day where you're setting aside to pray and read and learn and listen. 
and uh, that can that looks different for everyone. But I just I just don't know how we grow in intimacy with God without that time that, that that's devoted and committed. That's first. The second is for me, it's always been about uh, the people who have. Uh, who I've been able to be in, in intimate association with. Obviously, helps being married to Chrissy. She can, she's, you know, when, when I was in the middle of a campaign, there was nobody better to give me feedback, both political and personal. Uh, but also uh, beyond that, um, I had a group of guys that we met every Friday morning at, at 6.30 for 20 years. Uh, you know, that every Friday morning they pulled into my driveway. And so, when I first start, started thinking about running for mayor, they were the ones that said, I think you should think about that. We'll pray about it with you. And the same thing with governor. And they're the same ones though at times who would pull me aside and say, hey, Bill, that's not you. You know, I would do something or say something and they would be the ones that go, I understand, but, but that's not you. And so for, for me, that, that those groups of people who are around you, who are for you, whether you win or lose, but they're for you, not for you as, as an elected person or as somebody in the public arena. Right. Yeah, what a, what a gift those friendships are. Well, Governor, thank you so much. Um, and in just a moment, I wanna give you the last word. Uh, but before we do that, just a few things to share with all, every, all of you watching. Uh, first, immediately after we conclude, we'll be sending you a survey. And we'd really appreciate it if you'd fill it out. We read every one, we take the, the counsel and the feedback to heart, and we, try, we use it to try to make each of these uh, ever more valuable and rich. And as a special incentive to doing so, anyone who does fill out um, one of those feedback forms will get a, a free Trinity Forum digital reading of your choice. Uh, there's lots of different topics that pertain very much to the conversation we have just had, including City of God by St. Augustine, uh, Children of Light, Children of Darkness by Reinhold Niebuhr, Politics, Morality, and Civility by Vaclav Havel, as well as Democracy in America by Tocqueville with an introduction by Senator Ben Sass. So we, we hope that you will take advantage of that. And we really do appreciate your feedback. In addition, we will be sending around to everybody who registered an email tomorrow with a video link, as well as other suggested readings and resources. If you want to read more deeply on some of the topics that have been discussed, uh, we hope that you will do so. And we hope that you will share this video with others and start a conversation about some of the ideas that have, have, been, going, have been discussed today. In addition, we want to invite you to join the Trinity Forum Society which is the community of people who help make the mission and the programs of the Trinity Forum, such as this one today possible. In addition to helping us with that mission, there are many benefits of joining the society, including a subscription uh, to our quarterly Trinity Forum readings, our daily list of what we're reading, curated reading recommendations, uh, our podcast series, and many others. And as a special benefit for those of you who join today, uh, or with your gift of $100 or more, we will send you a signed copy of Governor Haslam's new book, Faithful Presence, The Promise and Peril of Faith in the Public Square. So I uh, hope that you will avail yourself of that invitation. Uh, and then as we close out our time together, uh, Bill, I'd love to give you the last word. Well, thanks, Sheree, and thanks for the honor of doing this. And to so many friends whose names I saw scrolled across, uh, thanks for joining us. 
you know, I, I'll borrow from Paul's words uh, as we close. I know a lot of us are just frustrated and exhausted by the whole experience of the public square, but I would again borrow Paul's words to therefore be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your work is not in vain. Thanks. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you to all of you who are watching today. Have a great weekend.